So, CAG. Yeah. You brought up CAG. You drive around Texas. Right. Uh, you're the your role there. Oh, I'm president, CEO. President, no, you're co-founder. Campus. Yeah, I was one of the co-founders. Okay. Uh, me and a couple other guys. But I think I was the first official employee because uh, my business partner wasn't necessarily active in the business, so he was kind of semi-retired at the time. But he and I put it, put it together and funded it, and off we went. Yeah. How long ago was that? I was like, I think it was about ten years ago, almost uh, probably to the week. Pretty close to really, it. yeah. So, so March of 2012, yeah. So, what gave you the idea <laughs> to start CAG? What, what was that kind of? Got to do something else, you know? What I want, I want to be the one calling the shots here. You know, I don't know so much if it was that as just it's what I do, and that seemed like a good way to go do it. Um, it kind of goes back to uh, so I started out. And I'm from Texas. I started out at uh, EDS, like a lot of people did, mm-hmm. back in the 80s. And then uh, in Ross EDS, P-Rot. it was actually about the time that uh, GM had bought them. Oh, okay. So, I don't know, 88-ish, 89, something right in there. And went and did all the stuff you do at EDS, you know, worked on financial systems, wrote code, did um, process design, all that kind of stuff. And that was really the place to be. And early on, kind of got into, back then, it was it was heresy. It was writing code for PCs. And so, there, in, in running on Windows, there was a tool called Power Builder that was brand new. <laughs> it's ancient now, but uh, everything was mainframe. Everything was big application projects. Mm-hmm. And um, I also did some work for the, uh, I was in the Air Force Reserve and we had a group in the Air Force Reserve that wrote applications for PC-based systems. And so we saw I saw that kind of being successful and I saw that's kind of where things were going. And so I was working on an application group at EDS that was building an app on Power Builder. And uh, this was probably mid early '90s, mid '90s, and uh, still single. Traveled a bunch, and there was a new uh, a recruiter called me, just kind of out of nowhere. And so there's a new company, it's a startup. They're building software in uh, Power Builder, and I got to thinking about it. And I had some funny some funny things that went on about that time working at the EDS. They were really becoming kind of big. Um, company it was easy to get lost in back then. And I just, I just really didn't see a lot of future there. So um, I went to work for this uh, startup company. I think I was employee eight or nine, something like that, writing code and uh, didn't know how much money they had, didn't know if they'd be successful. But the funny thing is that um, of the folks that worked there, nobody ever dreamed of the fact that they would not be successful, that we wouldn't pull it off. We didn't think of the odds or how many businesses fail. And and um, so we got this first software package written and um, they, uh, in order to keep the cost down, the first customer said, well, you can have the code rights to the, to the code. And this was about the time, this was a telecom company. This was about the time they deregulated all the CLEX or created all the CLEX. Broke up the yeah. bell. Yeah, and so all of a sudden all these uh, CLEX needed, you know, provisioning software. And we had provisioning software. And so that company really, really grew a bunch, ended up, uh, I was there probably three years maybe, and uh, ended up going from writing code to kind of starting the services group. Did y'all put that code in an escrow for that company as kind of a security or did you just give them rights to the code? I think they got license rights to it. And eventually we had to do a license form. Um, I just remember the, um, 
outside of that telco, um, I, I sold the first version of the software and we weren't even really sure what to charge for it at the time. I just remember going, they said, hey, Dave, you, you're, you've worked with customers directly before. The rest of these folks are writing code. Go, go see this company that's interested in the software. Um, see if you can make it run for them and then, then let's see if they'll buy it from us. And so I went and they were interested. And they said, okay, CFO said, okay, well, how much do you want for it? And I said, how much you got? Yeah, and I, <laughs> I said, uh, well, I talked with the, the CEO and he said, see if you can get 60 grand for it or something like that. And I think I said, well, how about 80? And the guy said, okay, and he got his checkbook out, wrote a check. <laughs> um, I was smart enough even back then to go, okay, thank you very much and Get leave. Out. Yeah, and I'll be back in a few weeks to start the install. And uh, that's before we didn't have mobile phones back then. So I got to the airport, <laughs> got on the, the phone and I called the CEO and he said, well, what, what happened to me? I said, well, uh, he cut me a check. And he goes, did you get the 60? He goes, no, nah, 80. And he's like, holy cow, okay. And the funny thing is kind of from there, it, it just took off. We got that implemented and software is pretty complex. And I think it was a year later, I remember a CFO flying in uh, with a check for like one point something million for basically the same software just right place, right time. Wasn't anything magic about it, just timing. Yeah. A little luck, little timing, plus just a group of people that just, I don't, I don't know if we didn't know any better, we just didn't think we'd fail. Is that company still around? Um, yeah, they actually went public um, about three or four years after that, and then Oracle bought them in like 2006, 2007 for 200 and something million dollars. So, That's not bad. Yeah, we made Austin Ventures a lot of money. They were the the primary VC on that. But uh, yeah, so I kind of learned how to do that. And then after that, I really stayed more in the services side, running um, services practices for technology companies. I worked for Sun Microsystems for a while, I worked for an integrator, um, pretty big regional integrator that, uh, that grew really rapidly. And um, where CAG came from is while I was working at that integrator, there was a recruiting company that I used and they had actually placed my wife at a place or two. And I believe they were the ones that recruited me out of EDS originally. So I stayed in touch with them. And so I called them because we needed people. And um, they said, well, these two guys from SMU, had, they bought our company. So I'm like, okay, these guys probably, you know, inherited some money from an uncle or something and bought this company. And she's like, you really should meet them. And so I met them and got to know two of them pretty well over the years. And, and uh, we'd talk every now and then and, and we'd say, hey, you know, you, we ought to do, do some work together. And they were growing that company and doing pretty well with it. And we just stayed in touch over the years. And uh, finally, I guess around 2002, I think, 2003, um, I ran into one of the guys and he said, hey, we have an opportunity that might be a good fit for you. Let's talk about it. And we'd kind of gone through this a few times. And um, I actually had, um, so my wife and I, our son was born in, in 2000 and uh, he had some he's, uh, had some real medical issues and uh, went, went downhill pretty fast. Um, he was normal until about three months and then started having seizures and a lot of issues. And so having benefits was pretty critical. Yeah. And uh, that start, started to become a problem because a lot of the, the type of medical care he needed wasn't covered by a lot of insurance. And so I kind of had to stay wherever I had decent benefits. And I remember telling the guy, I said, look, you know, you know about my son, he's very expensive, med he's medically fragile. We have around the clock nursing. It's it's a big issue. And uh, he said, well, our 
our you know our premiums are maxed out anyway. We've got you know we've got kids in the NICU. We got all the stuff. He goes, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. And uh, that that one little thing right there, it's critical. It made a huge difference. I mean, it changed everything. And uh, because it's one of those things where you know even though you make good money and and that kind of thing, you get a bill from the hospital. And you're like, there's no way I'm going to be able to pay this unless I figure out a way to to cover this. Yeah, and so. It was a battle pretty much, you know, every month. My wife had a, she had a full-time job dealing with uh, insurance benefits because the hospital would call you and say, oh, we owe $237,000. And it'd be like, no, that was filed wrong. And then next week it's like, oh, really? That's 2300 Sorry. <laughs> and so it was a, but but that that guy saying, um, I don't, you know, we're maxed out. It's not going to impact us. Come on over. Man, that was huge. That was huge. And so I went over there and um, they had me start, I started out running a small managed services deal that they had outsourced as the interim CIO. Okay. And uh, which I knew- This was the recruiting company. Yeah, they had actually grown over time and they were probably revenue-wise, I don't know, they were probably three or 400 people at the time, but okay. a big chunk of what they did was staffing and some uh, system integration and they had started this little managed services group where they would go run IT departments for for small and mid-sized companies. And they had one one that um, I think they had probably 11 or 12 people in IT. And the idea was to get it running right, make it work well, reduce their cost and stabilize it. And I, you know, I'd been in IT services and software for 20 years at this point. And two of the guys, one of them I already, so two of the guys I knew, and then one of the guys I hadn't met before. Well, one of the guys I knew and the other one, well, it turns out that guy, I had no idea at the time, went to Harvard Business School and had launched a software company that he had sold and worked for and worked for um, Booz Allen in their IT strategy group. And the other guy, same thing, he had gone to the University of Chicago and uh, got his MBA there, and they both worked at Booz Allen's IT strategy group. And so they knew a ton about IT strategy. And uh, so I, you know, I'd been in the industry a, a long time, but I learned a bunch from those guys. And I was the first person, I think, that they let go do, they had friends in private equity that would say, hey, go go look at this company we want to buy and tell us, is IT run right? Is the cost right? Are they on the right software? Is the org structure set up right? And these guys had a, had a format they, they would go through and they'd go evaluate this this organization and they say, well, here's how you need to do it. And then sometimes the, the investors would say, great, run it for that, for fixed fee, do all the things you said, make it work for what you said it should cost, make the changes you need to make. And um, and we got other things we got to go do. And that went from, you know, every couple of months, you might get one of those to once a month. And usually those two guys would go do the diligence side of it. And then at some point after a year or two, they started taking me with them and kind of showing me how to do it. And uh, that kind of really blew the lid off. <laughs> and so I started going doing buy-side diligence for private equity venture capital groups. And then we, about I think we figured about 30 or 40% of the time we'd end up running the IT department, which was important because, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people were like, oh, well, an assessment is just paid for pre-sales. And these guys didn't think that way at all. They said an assessment is an assessment. It stands alone. It's objective and it's correct. 
a lot of the things we do can be helpful for them, but not always. Sometimes what they need is not something we do. And I think the ones that you say, no, you should do it this way and this way and this way, and we're not any of that are as important as the ones you say, yeah, well, we can do that for you. It's pretty, pretty simple. So uh, anyway, that, that company was acquired by a bigger company, which was acquired by a bigger company over a period of years. And, you know, we went from doing, gosh, to, you know, uh, one a month to three or four or five a month. And so we were looking at, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 IT departments a year. And wow. assessing them. And it went from small companies to city retail, city bank retail. So, hey, can you look at our IT organization? Tell us what you think. And so every industry you can think of, public sector, private sector, most of it was pretty high speed though, commercial sector. And they're like, we need you to implement these changes in 90 days. Like, you know, we got too much spend and we need you to do it without breaking it and it needs to work well. And so just really complex stuff. Carve outs, um, somebody's buying a, a division of a public company has to be carved out in a certain amount of time on its own systems. You have to make quick decision on what, how to structure it, what software they need to use, all those kind of things. And just over and over and over and over again. And so um, over the years, a couple of the guys had kind of gone off and done their own thing. And some people had even gotten out of IT. So this was probably eight years later, maybe. And I'd even, we, we ran IT for some, um, uh, franchise companies, um, pretty big name ones. I think Popeye's Chicken was one of them. Uh, the parent company that owns Seattle's Best and Carvel, some of those and Slotsky's and um, besides a bunch of other things. So I'd actually thought about getting out of IT services and just going and doing something completely different. Buying a franchise, I'd gotten to know some of the franchise people, um, helping them turn around some ones that- You're gonna fry some chicken, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, one of the one of the guys that had worked for me for a number of years, um, we had a pretty tough process you had to go through um, to be able to go do this type of work. A lot of IT people would want to do it, but it's a brutal process because you're dealing with finance people from top schools in the U.S. and it's a lot of money, and you cannot make mistakes. You make one typo, you're done. And so we actually had a training program run by the guy I worked for that taught me how to do it. And uh, we'd give him a case study and uh, they'd go off in teams and come back and present it. And then he would be the customer. And it was, it was just so about five, five to 10 percent of the people that actually could do it actually wanted to do it after that and had the ability to. So one of the people that worked for me that helped a lot with especially with research and um, software design and process design when we do our assessments was um, um, it kind of hurt. I was, you know, looking to go do something else. And he's like, Hey, my dad, um, used to own some Domino's pizza franchises. He owned a bunch of different things. You should talk to him. He's going to be in town in a couple of weeks. He's done all that. You should ask him what he thinks about it. So and he, he had worked for me probably three or four years by then. And so he introduced me to his dad and his dad was Stan Huckabee. And that's the guy I ended up partnering with on CAG. And, uh, he said, yeah, it's a tough business, you know, the franchise thing, all that kind of stuff. He goes, he goes, maybe, you know, let's look, we'll see, maybe we can come up with something we can do. And then a few weeks later, uh, I think the story was his son, they were playing golf or something and his son had uh, some technology hat and he goes, that's really what we should do because you and Dave know technology. We should go do something like that. And, uh, so we decided, well, why don't we, so that little company that I'd gone to work for 
had grown to probably 110, 120 million dollar division by that time. Mm-hmm. And so we said, why don't we put the money together? He and I knew a bunch of finance people. We just put the money together and go buy that division from the parent company, see if they'd be willing to sell it. And um, we had some initial discussions to do that. And uh, they were going pretty well. It took a while, but we had some support. We had the financing behind us. Um, and uh, I never forget going down to Austin. I was riding with his son, Connor. We were going to see a, going to see a client. And he goes, hey, the stock just stopped trading. I was like, really? So they just announced that they were being acquired by an even bigger international company. And all the management was gone like next day. Wow. So it's like, oh, man, we have to start over. So we said, okay. We'll go talk with the new company. It was an international company, which complicated things. So plan D was maybe we just go start something and see how it does. Start from scratch. Yeah, which he had done and I had done. None of us wanted to do at that point. And so, uh, so we made a couple of attempts to, to say, look, we'd like to buy this division. And they finally just said, look, you know, um, we just bought it. And, uh, you know, we don't. Right. They wanted to play around. Yeah, with they wanted to see what they could do with it. So we said okay, and uh, are they still doing that? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a. I don't know if they're really doing the types of things that we did back in the day. I think it more more into sort of a staffing because it was a huge staffing company, and this group that we had <clears throat> that we were part of was like a round. Is it Ronstadt? Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, we've got a good friend that uh, worked for Ronstadt for several from, years. So He's we that monster from, now. We went from uh, this little company called Impact Innovations to TechnoSource um, and to Spherion. And Spherion Source, right, was acquired by Ronstadt. Do you know Chase Wilson? Is that uh, name? You know, no. Uh, solution design for Spherion and for Ronstadt. Yeah, no, I didn't. I don't uh, think I knew him. I know when he left, he was a VP of solution di- design, something along those lines. Well, they weren't really sure. Um, both Spherion and Ronstadt weren't really sure what to do with this group that we had. They liked the the back end part where we just go put people in there doing technology. The front end part, the design and that kind of thing, they weren't really sure what to do with that. So for a while, they stuck us with uh, this one technology group. And then for a while, they stuck us with, you know, they owned Tatum technology. So they stuck us with Tatum. They weren't sure where it fit. And um, so that's, that's probably about the time I started thinking, yeah, maybe I'll go do, do something else. And, They're Finnish, right? On um, Amsterdam, I think. So Dutch. Dutch. Yeah. Okay. For some reason, I was thinking they were Finland. Maybe it's just Nokia in my head. <laughs> no, I think it, I think they're from from Amsterdam. They had a U.S. Um, a U.S. kind of separate company in the U.S. I think it was based out of Boston at the time. And so we worked with them for a while, but nothing really came of it. So Stan and I just said, "Well, I guess we'll just go start this." And we'll do what you know how to do, which is buy side diligence from private equity groups and then outsource some of their IT. So we started out doing that. And people that I knew would just call and say, hey, can you come look at this? Can you do that? And um, um, having gone, and so we were traveling all over like we always always did. And so about that time, Stan said, what about A&M? You went to school there. He goes, I know some people over there that, that um, might be interested in talking to you. They've got some spending issues. They don't think IT is efficient enough. Maybe you can help them. And I think we were five or six people at the time, maybe seven. And so I'll go meet with them and talk to them about it and see what we can do. And uh, sure, I mean, that's pretty much what they needed. And, uh, but 
it wasn't just A&M College Station, the whole A&M system needed an assessment. And that's 150,000 user population. So 11 universities, eight state agencies, bazillion students, I and mean, just all over the place. It's like, well, we can help you run. Well, we can help you run the assessment. We know how to do it. We're going to need to pick somebody with enough arms and legs and capacity to go do a lot of these things, and it's to actually execute on mm-hmm. what comes out of the assessment. Yeah, right, and actually go do the work that we need them to do. And so, um, so we did that. And um, interesting thing is, at the time, they didn't have a CISO at the AM system, and the, the security that they had was still pretty basic. And so, a big component of that was security. And the interesting thing is you couldn't really tell anybody at the time that that's what we were looking at. And so we um, probably half of the work was around that, but you couldn't really say anything about it. Uh, Why not? um, They just wanted to, they didn't really want to publicize that they were looking at all these different entities that what their security status was. I mean, this was probably what, 10 years ago or so. Uh, they didn't really want to publicize that they're, you know, hey, we're looking at this because people might assume, well, maybe there's a problem there or something like that. So it's a, it's changed a bunch since then, and things moved a little bit slower. Nowadays, it's like, man, you have a breach, it's it's game on until it's It's all over the news. Yeah, and you have to move fast. Um, so we were trying to be proactive. So anyway, we helped them put together this assessment, and out of this assessment came a roadmap with a bunch of things, kind of a five-year plan. Um, we also helped them. Um, they hired a, a new CIO for the AM system, and uh, we helped get him up to speed on kind of what we were doing. And we kind of handed that off to him. And then um, a lot of what we helped do with the system over the next three, four, five years was based on that roadmap. It's like, hey, can you, these are things that we can do here, but can you go help with these, some of these, especially the regional schools? Or having some issues with these things or failing audits around these things can you go help them remediate this and see if they can fix it and that's how we kind of got into higher ed and then we'd do a good job there and they'd say hey can you go do this and so over time all the private equity and high-speed private stuff <laughs> we kept winning more and more higher ed and public sector and i think about 80 percent of our business now is in that area so uh, it took us it took us a while to learn how to do it because uh um, it's different, you know, funding comes from the state. Um, it's a sort of a different mindset. Faculty are really important, uh, kind of in the same way hospital doctors are, you know, they, um, and, uh, you know, you would think that a lot of these individual schools that you, if you could centralize a lot of those things, a lot of, a lot of them are the same. And what we'd learned through IT strategy is about, uh, 80% of IT departments are the same. Now, every company says they're different. Every school says they're different, but if you look, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, they have some apps and capabilities that are different, but everybody has email, everybody has networks, everybody has uh, finance, all those kind of things, which is true in the public sector. Um, they're generally have been kind of behind um, because they're, they're dependent on certain funding cycles. So they go buy hardware. Well, they can't really go do anything about that until that hardware is old enough that they have to replace it. Then maybe they can look at a cloud opportunity but they have a certain window to be able to do that or they just need to reinvest in the platform again. So they've, they've still got a lot of on-prem. So they're really just now starting to look at what cloud options are there. Can schools depreciate hardware the same way you would in a private enterprise? They really don't. Um, from what I've seen, it's, you know, they get a, 
they get in an, you know, an investment to replace their, let's say their um, financial system hardware. And it's a $12 million. So they get the $12 million to do that in a specific year. Um, it's really difficult too for them to buy services over a period of time. So usually with they, if they buy software or hardware, they buy services along with that. But to, to sign a service agreement for four or five or six years is harder for them to do and harder to get funded. It, and it, a lot has to do with where the funding comes from and the regulations around the, the funding. Uh, you have, to, you have to have a pretty good knowledge, which most of the CFOs are, are good at that, and how you can use those funds, what you can use them for. A lot of that's regulated. And so they can't just go, <laughs> they can't just go buy what they want. They have to buy what they can buy with it. And getting, getting capital for um, software, hardware, net, physical things, networks, and things like that is a lot easier for them than getting services. Really? Yeah. And you also... Um, um, you know, a lot of them too, um, change is, is, uh, I think like in most public sector change, you know, because they're academic, they're, they're thinking about change, but the actual execution of it is a lot slower. And so what we learned to do was in the commercial sector, we'd go, let's say you got to get this done in 90 days, or we got to carve this company out and stand it up. We get, you know, six months and that's all we've got. And it's got to get done in 90 days. And, um, in the public sector and specifically higher ed, um, they they like to have more input. Um, they like to have control over how quickly they change things. And they don't wanna just kind of uh, sort of roughshod, you know, change, change things around. And so what we would do, what we learned to do, was that instead of saying, hey, we can, you know, we can save 20% in three months and fix this thing. It's like, okay, here's, here's the plan. Here's what we're gonna do. You control how fast you wanna go. Because you, you know, you know the people, you know the, the funding mechanisms, uh, you know your institution better than anybody. You control how fast it goes. Um, there's economic incentive around using shared services, consolidating, using cloud services, but you can control how fast that goes, and, and we'll we'll let you handle the throttle. Is that different between public versus private higher ed? A little if bit, it, yeah, because they don't the private sector or the private schools don't have as much um, regulatory compliance around their funding, but a lot of them still do get federal funding and they still get state funding for scholarships and things like that. So they do have a lot of the same, um, um, especially around security, they have a lot of the same compliance and they have some of the same audits. It's a little bit easier to, to get money, but um, um, a lot of the private schools tend to be smaller too. Mm -hmm. So, um, so they don't necessarily have as much money as some of the big schools do. So, um, but yeah, it's a little easier, not a whole lot though. Cause you, you still have kind of the same sort of, um, you know, if they have, <laughs> they have a computer science department, obviously they probably think they know as much or more about computer science than you do. The difference is, is having done is most people find it hard to believe that we've done as much as we've done in the last 30 years that the, me and some of the folks that I work with that we've been through so many seen so many different situations we, we've never we've seen enough to know we can't say we've seen everything but we've seen just about everything and the strategy and approach behind what we do which is we're the whole advisory component CAG is a technology company but but first we're advisory so what to do is Columbia Advisory. Mm -hmm. what, to, what to do and how to do it are most important. 
um, a lot of the things that we do in the background that are that are technology based are executing on what the strategy is. And so working out the strategy and the roadmap to us is key. There aren't too many situations where we're going in just trying to specifically save money. Um, there's usually got to be uh, you know some sort of strategic reason why we're going to do what we're doing. And we have to think through what that is. You know, managed services and or outsourcing or, or whatever we end up providing is how we execute on it. But it's not always us. Sometimes it's like, well, like I said earlier, sometimes it's like, well, you know, we're, that's not something we really have the capability to do or, or it's not a specialty of ours, but this group over here knows how to do that. And so we would recommend you use those. And we've always stayed pretty technology agnostic. So we've worked with a ton of different, if you look at our website and our marketing material, there's a million logos on there and it's mm -hmm. pretty accurate. I mean, we've worked with just about everything. And, um, and so we say to some extent we're agnostic, but we do have an opinion on what works and context is important. What works in that particular context makes the most sense. Doesn't necessarily have to be the one on the in the right quadrant on on Gartner. It's what what works best for your organization and the market you're in, doing the things that you're trying to accomplish. It's got to align with that, and that has to come first before we do all this other stuff. Yeah, you got to investigate it. Yeah, that's probably the advisory component is the thing that I think people uh, people miss because they're like CAG. Um, well, if you knew us 15 years ago, if you knew those of us that run CAG that do most of the work today, um, a lot of it comes from advisory. I mean, we know the technology because you have to know it to be able to advise someone, but um, a lot of it comes from strategy. And, uh, but you have that pedigree with EDS and Booz Allen. You, know, and, you were Well, I worked were, for some guys that worked for right. Booz Allen. They also wrote a, a couple of textbooks, and uh, one of them was used uh, – in a lot of universities for teaching IT management. Really? So a lot of their IP and how to do things. And then later on in a second edition, um, some of the things that we did um, ended up getting into the second edition of that. And so um, I still go back, you know, it's probably somewhat dated, but I still go back and look at it sometimes and say, okay, well, yeah, I remember we were thinking about this. Yeah. They had this, they had this one thing I remember we came up with, um, it's like, remember thinking that we need some way of explaining this to the client. Well, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a, is a, we need like an IT hierarchy of needs. There's actually, it's in, in their second edition of the book. There's a, it's clients want, uh, we want analytics and reporting and we want all this innovation, but your email doesn't work. Well, we want to go do all these things, but your network won't stay up. And so you got to fix the basics before you can go do yeah, you gotta have a good foundation. You really do, and it's 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 common sense, but people get lost with it a lot of times oh. because they're so they're so motivated to go get these things done, but they start to do that, and then they realize they haven't patched Oracle for three years, and a lot of the tools that they want to use won't work. Or hey, you know, we haven't really thought about what data we might need to go drive those analytics. Maybe we should go look at that. Oh, we don't really have the data. Oh, by the way, we don't have the database software to do it. So. Um, I want a pretty bar graph. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, what are you going to put you, into that bar graph? <laughs> yeah, you're on, uh, you know, you're on a 15 year old version of email. You know that barely works. Yeah, Lotus one two three or something. So is that still out there at all? Uh, Do y'all run into I've, that? I've seen Lotus Notes, not in the last five years, but um, public sector. Some of them are still running Lotus Notes. Wow. You know, five six years ago. Yeah, yeah talk about not. the long tail. Yeah. Um, what was I forget what the 
networking uh, net. So, I don't know. Some of them are still running. Novell. Yeah, Novell. Novell um, Network. Three Eleven. That yeah. was uh, one of my first IT gigs at the uh, Children's Hospital here in Dallas. I was part of rolling that out in the mid nineties. Yeah. That's a. Uh, you know, it's funny. Technology changes over the over time, but essentially, a lot of it does it does the same things. So you yeah. look at. Uh, I also rolled out Bang and Vines. I remember that one too. That one was good. That one was. There's nothing wrong with the uh, yeah. What was the one IBM used um, forever? I remember, but I mean a lot of they did a lot works. of token ring. A lot of people still have mainframes too. I mean they're still out there. So uh, um, that's why we. I mean, we like a lot of the newer technology. Um, we look at it. It always tends to look like something you've seen before. Mm-hmm. And maybe it does some new things. Every now and then there's something that's truly a kind of a game changer. You know, obviously, the internet was a, a lot of people don't remember Netscape, though. Netscape was the thing. You know, that was the browser, and you don't hear about it anymore. And that was the lawsuit against Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, just um, you go look at a lot of the, you know, like the um, object-oriented and, you know, all the different types of databases they have now. So, well, yeah, we had that kind of technology. It's just it's kind of re- reused. So the concepts don't really change that much. How they're yeah. used change the speed, the capacity, the processing capacity, things like that. But a lot of the younger workers are so much. I mean, it took years to get that kind of experience back in the day, and now they you know, a lot of them come out of college and they know some much out more. of high school. Yeah, some of them are like, eh, college. What am I going to learn? I already know how to write. Uh, you know, I've been writing Ruby on Rails since I was you know twelve or whatever, right? And, uh, and or whatever they're they're uh, whatever they're working on. Yeah, they spend seventy five bucks and get a a Raspberry Pi, and <laughs> all of a sudden they're writing code, yep. building apps. So, um, but anyway, so that's kind of, I mean, so we've we've continued to grow in the um, higher ed sector. Uh, we do some work outside of that, um, I think just to keep things interesting. But it seems like every time we get, um, like we signed a we signed a master agreement with a Fortune 50 telecommunications company, we thought, okay, we'll go do some different stuff. One of the first things they did was put us into one of their large education clients to help them. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, cyber. You do some HIPAA stuff too, right? We do some. Yeah. Um, we actually have done IT support for a number of uh, pharmacies and specialty pharmacies over the years. We had we had um, one that we'd worked with for pretty much since we started CAG um, that was a, a pharmacy, both a retail and a specialty pharmacy that we'd supported for a long time. and. Uh, um, they actually went bankrupt a few years ago, and uh, part of it is not uh, because of what you were charging. No, no. Um, it uh, they their primary location got hit by a tornado, and I think they had already been having some financial. They kind of overexpanded, that kind of thing, trying to keep up with the Walgreens and CVSs of the world. Uh, yeah. And I just think they, you know, I think they reorganized and they're still going. And I know for a while we were doing some like instead of a fixed managed services agreement. We were doing some hourly support for them as they needed help as they tried to get back on their, their feet. But, um, so, you know, some of the clients that we've had, we work with for a long time. Um, they know we know what we're doing. Um, sometimes they don't like the advice that we're giving them. And so you have to, you have to work with that. Um, but uh, most of them know, I think when we work with us over time that we make, we make good decisions on their behalf. Uh, we have a pretty good um, ethical component to what we do, 
And I think you have to, to be objective. You have to think, what is the right solution for this? And that's why I used to, used to tell people that at the 60 something percent that we don't do something for after an assessment or due diligence are at least as important as the ones we do because how they do with the advice we gave them and with the input we gave them matters to us. And that's, that's where they're going with their company. So we don't, we don't give away free assessments. We don't do free, we don't do assessments as a sales process. We, we give them something of value that they can use and we still feel that way about it. Yeah. Well, Um, integrity is, it is, and it's important. Whether it's uh, something you can benefit down the road to me, there's always benefit in helping someone, you know, helping their company grow and, you run into them five years later, and this happens a lot when you're in the market for a long time. Uh, you run into them five or 10 years later, and they're like, hey, you remember that stuff you guys did way back in the day? That really worked well, and here's what we ended up doing. And you just and you just hear stuff like that. It's kind of like my mom's a retired teacher, and you run into kids you taught with their kids, and they're like, oh, I remember you telling me to do this, that, and that, and I tell my kids that. And you know, <laughs> I just, um, there's, there's a lot to that. I think that's pretty that's pretty valuable in this business, being able to help people be successful. Um, whether they work for you, whether it's clients or whatever, I think is 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 critical. Yeah, and uh, there's only so much uh, bit twiddling and technology stuff that's exciting. But in the end, what do you what are you doing with that, and is it helping them? Helping them grow and advance what they're trying to do. So you're mostly in. You said 80% is higher ed, but you're in other markets. It seems to me what I've learned thus far is you index towards things that are heavily regulated. Is that by design? Uh, yeah, pretty much. We do stuff that's hard because we've done so so many things. I think we like the challenge of things that are highly regulated. It's tough to operate in. It's hard to make changes. It's hard to affect change quickly. Um it's pretty challenging. And so things like, uh, you know, public sector, higher ed, uh, financial technology, you have a combination of highly regulated, a lot of money involved. And then also there's a lot of new technologies out there that are pretty interesting. Um, a couple of them are game changers, I think, you know, obviously blockchain, everyone's mm-hmm. looking at that. Um, that's that's kind of new, interesting game changer. Um, you know, who knows where that's gonna go in three, four five years. Um, but some people are seriously looking at that. And a lot of the financial technology companies and um, uh, everything from banks to payment companies and people like that, are, uh, um, they're trying to look at how do, we, how do we make it so seamless to be able to do things, but yet still apply all the regulatory and control processes that we need in place. And that, to us, that's pretty challenging. Obviously, healthcare's you know, always been challenging. Um, and so, you know, we just tend to, we migrate to those things. And I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, we're probably the, the doc in the ER that takes the hardest cases just because we've been doing them a long time and they're the ones that, they're the, you know, when no one else wants to do it, they call. You're those guys that just need that challenge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, only, there's only one guy in the ER that could, or a gal in the ER that knows how to, to put this back together. And, okay, we just kind of take that on. All right, I'll start calling you Doctor Strange. <laughs> Doctor Strange, we did. We have done some really, you know, strange things over the years. You get a call from a an investment group, and they're like, "Meet us in New York on Monday." Can't tell you what we're doing. Can't tell you we're investing in. Can you give us an idea of the technologies? Nope. 
just be at this place at 9 a.m. on Monday in Manhattan. And you just, you go do it. And they're like, we need you to go do this in 45 days. Can you do it? And you got to be able to say, right, there's no, well, let me go think about it. It's like, can you or can't you? They need to know. Yeah. And yeah so, or nay. Yeah. And it's that, that simple. And when you say yes, you better. You got to deliver. You got to deliver. You got to execute. And we've done so many of those things. Um, and uh, just some really complex stuff. And you just see the funniest things. You go, you know, when you look at so many different companies, especially small and mid-sized ones, you just see a lot of really funny stuff. And uh, I think I'm gonna have to write them down one of these days. But uh, <laughs> so I- The know, memoirs. Being from Texas, uh, yeah, I, I find this, a lot of people might not find this funny. I looked at this one company one time and the investors I looked at it for, I don't think they bought it. But anyways, I'm, I'm looking around and uh, we're walking around and they have this big warehouse and they don't have a whole lot of systems and stuff. So we're looking around, there's this big fenced in area. And I see like some old uh, like GPS terminals and things like that in there. I'm like, what's all that stuff in there? And they said, oh, it's just the old equipment and everything. And I'm like, well, that's probably good that you have it locked up. And there was these crates over in the corner stacked up. And I was like, well, what's, what's that stuff over there? And the guy said, well, th those are ammo boxes. And I mean, these, these were crates. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, we allow some of our employees to, to store that here because it's safe. It's, you know, we've got all the safeguards in place. And I was like, well, why would they want to store it here? And he said, in case it goes down. <laughs> and I said, in case what goes down? He said, well, you know, we can talk about it later. And we didn't say another thing about it. Yeah, it's part of their bug out plan. <laughs> yeah, and it was, okay. Um, I, I think I would probably want to keep my 223 and 556 <laughs> a little bit closer than the office, but. Uh, so, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I, I remember uh, this one company that, uh, um, I think it was, a, it was a garbage company and or a salvage company, and they had a, a contract with one of the, and I didn't see them myself, one of the guys I work with went and did this deal. And uh, they had a contract with one of the big automakers that if they had a bad car, they just they uh, they had to dispose of it. So they had to take the car. They couldn't resell it. They had to chop it up and sell off all the parts. But apparently, however they interpreted it, whatever they did with the car before they chopped it up was up to them. So they'd have these little smash-up derbies with these cars. And uh, so anyway, that was probably can't go into a whole lot of that. But that was pretty funny. And uh, in that same company, I remember them saying, well, we had these salespeople. We had this big sales force. And uh, we put GPS trackers on their cars so they wouldn't know, you know, we could track where they were going. And what we found out is, you know, like 7% of our sales force took a nap every afternoon after lunch. They'd go pull into some, to some parking garage and just take a nap. And uh, so we brought him in and wrote him up and said, you can't sleep anymore. And he said, the productivity on sales went down fast. People quit, that kind of thing. And he said, what we learned is sometimes you don't need to know, or if you do, sometimes you got to let people take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, productive. There, there is nothing wrong with 30 minutes after lunch. I, I like the idea of the siesta. Yeah. That's just, you know, you see, there's just a lot of things that, you know, you see over the years. Uh, um, router network routers in the in the stall of a bathroom you know because i've seen those yeah seen, that, um, seen a lot of weird stuff in telco closets mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. Anyway. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of Cat 3 running around in telco closets. There well, is. There's, there's a lot of everything still running around out there. It's, yeah. it's funny what you see. We got to hurry up and get to the cloud. You're uh, you're running Cat 3 in your telco closet. Yeah, you've got a little and you, hamster wheel that is your backup power or something. You really don't have a switch. You're jumpering everything off a 66 block. That's old school telco. <laughs> That's... And you see people that invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in backup in redundancy, but they never test it. It's like, have you tested it? Well, why not? Oh, well, we're not sure it'll work. <laughs> like getting a generator yeah. for your home or your building. You've got to run that thing. Yeah, Otherwise, the diesel is going to go bad. And when you do need it, it's not going to work. Yeah. Then you hear of like pretty big organizations, you know, their backup batteries catch on fire when they kick in. Well, when's the last time you changed them? I don't know if we ever changed the batteries. It's the original. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just basic little stuff and when that goes back to strategy and advice and that whole maslow's hierarchy if you can't do this stuff eventually this stuff either you're not going to be able to do it or it's going to fail and so you know you sound like the the old football coach or maybe just your first guitar teacher i really need you to learn how to play a really good a chord Mm -hmm. you're like no no i want to do i want to do the Eddie van halen you know i'm gonna play eruption yeah (laughs) And you're like, I just really, it's like Gene Simmons used to say, I don't really want a fast guitar player. I want somebody that can break ribs with an A chord. And so that was Gene saying, that's the thing you want to do. You got to get those basics. Um, sometimes though, you have companies that have to deliver on some of these things while you fix that. And that gets, that gets tricky sometimes. And that sometimes is where you need an expert, which goes back to the advisory. You don't need a technology firm to fix that. You need somebody to, figure out how do you unwind the, uh, how do you how do you take cards out of the card house and put new ones in without knocking the whole thing over? And so, uh, for example, let's say they have regulatory reports they have to generate, but they can't keep their systems up and running on the back end. They still have to generate those reports. So you gotta figure out a way for them to do that while you're working on the foundation. And so uh, some of those take some pretty, pretty creative thinking and experience on how do you knock that out and still make it happen while you're fixing this thing? Because some of these fixes are, you know, you just can't do them overnight. It's, you know, if somebody hasn't patched something for three years, that's pretty much a re-implementation of whatever it is. It's hard to go through that many patches. Because right. many of the big software companies nowadays, um, you know, there's a patch, patch a week where it used to, you got a couple a year. Especially on the cyber side. Yeah, it's just, it's constant. And then when you layer that, so you got OS, you got a database, you got software, you got integration. Endpoints. Some of the, yeah. And uh, especially in higher ed, you don't see it as much on the commercial side anymore, but they have a central app and then they have 5,200 other applications that live around it. And most of them integrate with that. So if you change one thing, it's going to impact all of these things. So, um, which slows down change control. And so the idea over time is you wanna you want to retire some of those things that maybe are redundant that you don't need because you just can't maintain them. And that's how a lot of them get into these patching and get so far behind on some upgrades and things like that because to change something like that without breaking something becomes really difficult to do. You gotta have a, a lot of experience. You gotta have all that stuff mapped. You gotta have a separate environment you can do that in and you gotta take your time. And so the simpler you can make it, uh, you know, the long-term, the easier it's going to be to support just basics. 
And yeah, as you talk through this, and I've talked to Brad with you guys, I was wondering, when you look at a college system mm-hmm. that's got 10, 11 campuses, you got all these different departments within these campuses, how hard is it to standardize or how easy is it for a separate department to go rogue and to keep track of that? I mean, I would think <laughs> that maybe sometimes you might find out, take COVID for example, Does it, is everybody using Teams? Is everybody using Zoom? Or do you have somebody that's got, well, this department over here went and bought Ring Central off of a pro- procurement card. This guy over here got Zoom and then and I know you you have an audio visual component too. Do you walk into any of these universities and and go, how in the hell did you guys end up end up with six different, you know, federated platforms for this? Or does, does that not happen? It happens a lot. Um, so in higher ed, for example, you don't see it as much in the commercial sector because usually they have financial goals and incentives they're trying to hit as a company. So they're not going to spend money on something they don't really need. Um, it's not always true in a big, you know, really big company, but in higher ed, uh, some of them have, you have professors, um, mm-hmm. a lot of them have to have labs to be able to teach what they do. So computer science, for example, they have, they have specialized labs that they teach people how to, how to support computer systems. Um, so you end up with software in there, even though it's not supposed to be connected to the network and that kind of thing that somehow ends up being connected to the network, which creates a, an issue too. And then you end up with this catch 22 and they have to have that capability to teach the class. But from a regulatory standpoint, they can't have access to the network from a rogue piece of software somewhere. And so. So then you have to get into how you're segmenting the network logically, mm-hmm. layer two, layer three segmentation. And you may even have to go to the governing body and say, hey, here's some situations that this policy doesn't doesn't address. Is there a way we can rewrite or amend the policy over time so that it will allow us to do these kind of things? And we do that too. I mean, we work directly with some of the regulatory bodies, especially around cyber. And it's like, look, we're seeing this issue these policies don't really cover that. Here are some things that you guys need to consider in your next update to your policies. Um, and so we, and we, you know, we provide that input back to the clients you work with. But yeah, also you have um, some of the larger universities, somebody gets a research grant. Mm-hmm. So in some of those big, you know, um, if you take like Texas A&M College Station, they have almost a billion dollars a year in research. Wow. And they're doing, they're doing research for commercial entities, they're doing Department of Defense research are doing all kinds of stuff. Some of it's classified, some of it's, you know, who knows what. And a lot of times the funding for those grants, it's not supposed to work this way, but the fundings for those grants go directly to the, the grantee who's running the project. And depending on the types of controls they have, I'm not saying A&M goes and does this, but I've, I've seen situations where they'll go buy all their own hardware or software because they have the money. The money goes straight to them. They're like, oh, we don't want to use. It's not one. sitting in the university's bank account. Um, not typically. No, no. It's going directly to that uh, that grant project or that project. But if it's going directly to that project, and if Brad and I were talking about this last fall, the Department of Justice came out with a big stick and said, "Hey, if you're not meeting these NIST frameworks, mm-hmm. we're going to fine you." Right. But beyond the fine, because the fine was sub twenty five k per incident, are, usually per incident, yeah, which that could go 
that could be pretty substantial. But 25K, you're like, okay, well, that's when you've got an endowment that's a few trillion dollars or whatever it is, doesn't seem like a lot. However, we're also going to take away your grant dollars. Mm, that's right. big, big money, right? It is, just yeah. a billion dollars to TAMU. So if that money is going directly into the grantee, then how does IT or somebody at a higher level within a university system understand that there's this thing going on over here that could be at risk, and if the money's following the professor, and then DOJ comes down and says, hey, university, we're not just slapping you on a wrist. This is gonna be painful. Now that professor says, well, if I can't do this stuff here, I'll go to a competing school and take my grant dollars with me, right? And I think that happens sometimes. So how do you, as part of that advisory component, is that stuff that you're looking for and that you can identify? Do you all get, mm-hmm. does it extend beyond IT, but also look and saying, okay, you guys got a billion dollars worth of grants sitting here on the line. Mm-hmm. Here's these rules, regulation, all this regulatory stuff you have to follow. You need to uncover this because this creates other risk. Right. Yeah, you have to have a, there's a couple things. One is you can, you have to have research um, policies and controls in place that don't, that really disincent and make it difficult for them to go rogue. They still do sometimes. Also with kind of the advent of the SOC technology and network technology, um, it's become a little bit easier to detect kind of if somebody sets up a rogue network somewhere, even if it doesn't connect directly to yours. And then also just relationships, knowing the people that are that are getting the grants, knowing who that is. Your internal IT folks need to know who those people are. They need to go get to know what they do, why they're doing it, because the, the stakes are pretty high. Yeah. And they need to have audit backup from that. Hey, we, you know, audit needs to go take a look at these things and make sure the policies they're supposed to follow are being enforced. Because what happens is you, know, you end up seeing in the news, well, they go set up their own network, they start doing this research, um, some of the researchees disappear, or they're also incented to publish their research. And so somebody says, hey, I'll give you you know, a bunch more money if you publish your research with us. And it turns out maybe that's a bad actor that's encouraging you to publish your research. And all of a sudden you lose control of it. And so I think that, I think a lot of the research people have gotten smarter and they know the kind of what the stakes are, but, um, there's still, there's still a little bit, I think I know better how to run it than our internal IT group. And I don't want to follow the internal IT group's policies and procedures because it's just going to slow down my research. It's going to make it hard to do anything. And uh, I think there's more visibility now into that, but it goes back to the basics. You know, if we can just get you to do these basic things, it's going to eliminate probably 90% of the, of the risk around this. Can we just get you to do that? Um, a lot of the newer professors, faculty, people that are more, you know, in tune with that, I think are becoming easier to work with. And, uh, but it's just that it's that bottom foundation. If you can get them to do those things, it keeps a lot of us safer because the stakes really are pretty high. Yeah. You don't want all of a sudden, you know, see fighter jets look like yours and you know, you know how that happened. (laughs) Right. And it happens. It happens a lot. So the real trick is while you're providing this IT oversight and advisory and cybersecurity or the other endpoints, I mean, you guys do audio visual and, you know, at first blush, I would say, well, how does AV tie in with 
IT and cybersecurity, but then I, it took me about a half minute and go, well, there's an IP address on it. So it's a connected device. It's an endpoint. So, Zoom bomb. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a threat. It it's, is. There's a threat vector there. So anything that's connectable, you know, you have a lot of these IoT things out there now, especially like medical devices and things. Mm-hmm. All of those things. Um, if you go just start plugging them into networks that aren't properly protected, that don't have that basic capability in there, you're going to have problems. Yeah. And uh, it may be tonight, it may be tomorrow, it may be next year. You don't know, but it's not it's not protected. And um, I think. I think part of the IT is part of the problem. I think because for so many years we've we've the sky is falling around security. The sky is falling. Change your password. The sky is falling. It's got to be seventy two characters now. Yeah. Upper, lower, special. Well, you know, 10, 15 years ago, twenty years ago, people were like, "Oh man, the IT people just just stop telling me to change my password because people didn't see any visual or any um, visual impact or actual impact of, of where that led." They didn't know that they're, you know, somebody could get into their remotely get into their, their PC and find their social security number if it was in their credit cards. And they didn't know that, oh, by the way, there's a market out there that they sell these things, mm-hmm. a, a big market. And, the, and a, but I think finally the, uh, some of the media and, and, um, probably some of the, the bigger tech firms have, have caught on to this is a real risk. We're not just, we're not yelling the sky's falling. This is a huge risk. Um, yeah, these fighter planes do look like ours, and there's something that happened 10 years ago. That, that's why. And, yeah, there is a market, and, yeah, you do. they do have your information, and most of us, our information's been swiped somewhere. So it's it's a real risk, and I think people are starting to get it. When we go work with a client, one of, one of the things we ask is, you know, what type of research do you do? How do you go about doing it? How do you, you know, what is the technical platforms that you use? And um, um, some of the big, big schools, you know, you just have these high, high speed computing, research computing environments that are very secure. Um, but, um, and they're usually pretty good about, about doing that. But um, we try to go and ask and try to understand what it is. And you can pick out pretty quickly if the IT department's in tune with research and vice versa, or if there's a complete disconnect between these guys are and gals are doing whatever they want to do and IT can't get them to. A lot of times that's because IT is trying to make them. These folks don't want to be made. It's, you know, like yeah. third grade politics. Right. And a lot of times from an IT perspective, people look at almost like it's a kind of a big brother type thing or it's mm-hmm. somebody it's sometimes gets this nanny type of you can't do this. You can't do this. And I don't know, maybe y'all have found some secret sauce for this, but <laughs> if IT be, can be, be a partner within the organization where it's not presented as a way of, we're not here to keep you from doing your job. We just want to put some guardrails around so you can be more efficient in doing your job. But that, do y'all, yeah, does, you, does that make sense? You see it a lot. So some, uh, some, and we, you know, if we use higher ed, for example, some school will have Somebody that started out in IT 30 years ago that worked their way up because they'd been there so long. They're the CIO or IT director. And IT from way back when was always the department of no. No, we can't do that. No, we don't have the money. No. And so people just get really tired of it. And so when it comes time, maybe that person's retiring or or whatever, like we want to get somebody in here who's going to uh, service us as clients and treat us as their customer. 
and then they end up getting somebody who um, uh, says yes to everything, um, doesn't have the the relationship skills to to make sure that only, they only say yes to things that make sense, and how to structure an IT organization and the and the things that need to go around it, the the capabilities that go around it, so that there's a right way to say yes and no, and it makes sense to people and it's transparent. And so they go from, usually they go from one extreme to the other. Um, and then all of a sudden nothing's getting done because they're saying yes to everything. And you go in there and they've got 200 projects and none of them have been completed. And uh, they've, got their, they've got twice the IT staff they had 10 years ago and they're doing even less than they were 10 years ago. So they went from no to everything to yes to everything. And there's a right answer and a way to do that. And that kind of comes from, again, the basics, things that we've learned to do over the years that work really well, um, that help you balance the yes and the no so that it makes sense. It stays um, aligned with the strategy of the organization. IT is a delivery group. Their job is to provide input into strategy, technology into strategy, what can help but to help facilitate that strategy. If you're doing things that aren't aligned with that organization's strategy, um, it needs to be for safety or something that you see that, and that needs to circle back up to the organization leaders. IT is there to serve that organization, but you have to be a good advisor. So I'm trying to think of a good example. So if you're, if you're worried about, um, so if the organization is, for example, a grow enrollment, um, uh, outreach to the community and these sorts of things. If you're going to go buy, a, if you have some extra money, you're going to go buy a robot. It better be pretty well fashioned around supporting one of those programs. Otherwise, it's a it's a play toy. Or if you're off writing software that, hey, it'd be really cool if we could do this. It needs to be in support of those objectives. Everything you do needs to be in support of that. And you also have to remember that the IT steering committee or governance group, IT is an input to that. IT doesn't own that. It's usually the CFO, one of the senior leaders in the organization. Now, IT provides input, estimates, that kind of thing, but that governing organization decides what IT works on. Hmm. Pretty simple. Now, IT has to be transparent about, hey, you know, 50% of our labor is, is patching, it's uh, upgrading uh, network devices, it's all those sorts of things our discretionary capability is this. So this is the stuff you have to do, the higher order things, because we got to take care of the base, and that takes this. Ideally, that should be 30, 40% of your cost. And you go into an organization and they're spending all their time and money trying to get that fixed. Users are unhappy because they're not getting this, not getting this done. So one of the things we do is say, okay, you, you guys either do this and we'll take this, or we'll do this and you take this, and we'll give you help on on fixing this. Um, otherwise, your governing body's just going to find a new IT leader and redo the IT department again. So there's a real there's a real science to how that works. It's not all no, it's not all yes, but you have to say no and yes in the right way. And that's any organization, not just higher. Yeah, it's it's any. We set up the same type of um, processes and governance in just about any organization we work with. Now, a few of them that are regulated, they have certain outputs to some of those processes that are regulated reports that they have to be able to see, which uh, actually is even better because it gives you better justification for why you want to do that. Cause, well, because the minutes are an audible item and it doesn't have to be exactly the way we we like to do it, but they need to have some type of output 
from this process. And so, um, and you can't go change all this unless you have some kind of change control process. Well, it sounds simple, but a lot of people just go in and, you know, it's quick and easy. Just go make that change so you can get that report out. Well, then you, you take down all these other things, or maybe you get lucky and nothing breaks. You do that enough times, you're going to blow yourself up. So there's got to be a, a coherent process. And the people asking for outputs from IT, you need to be transparent on how that works. And they need to have input and some, some control over how you, how you follow that. But um, um, it, it seems practical and basic, but people forget to do it. No. Oh. Basics get overlooked a lot. They're, they really basics do. are not exciting. They, they don't get people jazzed up. A chord. Can you play really fast if you can't play oh, yeah. a good A chord? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you play a basic bar chord? Okay, so why you, you know. Anyway. Yeah, the rest is filler. Yeah. And uh, you got you to gotta get those basics right. And people hate that when, you know, let's get back to the working on the foundation. But it's not fun. It's not cool. No, you can't do that if you can't do the basics. So uh, it's you know you hear that all the time. It doesn't matter if it's business, if IT, it could be sports. What do you all need to work on to get better with your football team? We just got to get back to the basics. It's mm -hmm. blocking and tackling, blocking and tackling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it uh, it sounds like such a cliche, and it's it's true. So you have to explain to them what the basics really are, in in the context that they're dealing with. And, and how that impacts them and you also have to give them some control over it too okay so we you know right now we're spending 70 percent working on the bottom 20 percent of things that need to be done well here's how long that's going to take here's how much money that's going to cost and here's the result that's going to come from that and you you have to make that happen you can't have the perpetual foundation project going on that uh, nobody has any visibility and it just, it eats up all the resources. So you right. have to be able to tell them, look, here are the things we're gonna do. We're gonna upgrade this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. By the way, you can help. And uh, what that's gonna do is create this much capacity over here for us to be able to go do all this stuff that you wanna do. So it's about freeing up capacity to do things that you wanna do. So now, I was reading on, since y'all have got a lot of higher ed business, there's a couple articles I've read through that intimate that higher ed and a lot of you know, municipal governments are kind of in the same boat that from a technology perspective, they're easily 10 years behind where enterprise and mid-market public sector is. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, sometimes further. And most of them, you know, probably the last three or four oh, years. that's a lot of notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And most of them have, uh, have, are willing to tell you too nowadays that's like hey you know we're we're really far behind um it's going to take us a long time to catch up we know we're doing some of the the right things we're budget limited so we can't do everything we want to do once plus there's the whole um, you know the kind of spider web you have to be careful what you what how you change things and what order yeah. and so a lot of them i think have gotten to the point where um, they know that and they're trying to do something about it users get impatient because they want the latest, greatest thing. Researchers get impatient because they want to go do their thing and they don't want to wait for you to fix it. And those are, those are tough situations because your, their funding's down maybe. Um, they don't have the money to do the things that they need to do, even the basic stuff, and they're getting a lot of demand on IT and 
people are like, oh, well, I, could, I can go download and load this on my iPhone and, or I can go download this free software and it'll work great. And uh, that's a tough situation it's where you have to have really good relationships with the leadership team in the organization to say, look, I know you want to go do that. There's an impetus to go do that. Um, it's counterproductive and here's why. Now, we're not going to be the ones that tell you no every time, but here's what can happen if you go do that and why we really discourage it. Now, if there's something that we really need to do, let's let's sit down together and figure out the best best way to go do it instead of somebody downloading something on their uh, on their uh, desktop, you know, for the university or, or whoever. And, um, plus, I think we've gotten better, too, in some cases. Not everyone at uh, some of the monitoring that goes on, not just, you know, in and out of the firewall, but east-west files move around. Some of the bigger schools have gotten pretty sophisticated. So the monitoring, uh, you know, detection response has gotten a lot better uh, just in the last five years. So they can see that if they have that capability. Um, some of the smaller schools and uh, like community colleges can't really afford that level. And so one of the one of the challenges we've been working on, and I think we have some good answers, are how do you get a front-to-back? And uh, Brad may have talked about this a little bit a front to back, everything from the governance, um, regulatory and compliance, all the way to the SOC and everything in between, a service that works well, that's affordable to a smaller mid-sized school. How can you get it in at that price point? And I think we have a good answer for that. Um, it's not easy to do, and that's kind of one of the things that I think we're pretty good at is, I think we've put together ourselves and maybe a partner or two that can provide a commercial level service, um, 24 seven strong service that's affordable by a smaller mid-sized school. Um, and it's not free, it's not cheap, but it's something they can do and can afford it if they, if they plan for it. And uh, um, I, I like to do that, I like to see that. And I think Denunzio and Brad are the ones that, that came up with that. Here's how this is gonna work. And because it's, I mean, you look at the pricing on some of those tools out there. It's just, we had, we had one school that they got the funding to buy uh, Splunk. <laughs> they couldn't get any money. Splunk's for, not cheap. No, it's not. And they're a small school. And so they set aside the money, but they couldn't get any funding to get resources, either trained or bring in the resources to deploy it. Yeah. And, and Splunk so definitely needs resources to make it it's useful. sitting there. Yeah. And so, like, you know, they needed something that works you know, and they need to trade that in on something that's affordable that works well. Some of it is probably a blend of their people and <clears> outsiders, um, but but for what they paid for for Splunk, you know, you, you could get an end-to-end -end solution that works pretty well. I, I like doing stuff like that. That's kind of fun. Well, I think some of our people do too. It's like, how do we solve the? It's almost more of an economic problem than a technical problem. Well, yeah, kind of think that it's also. A bit of a salesmanship problem, not for you guys necessarily, but whenever I look at universities and and I'll say this as a as a parent that just graduated a kid out of college and seeing what she's doing. I've got another one that's a junior here in North at UNT. Um almost immediately after my oldest one got out of school, she ended up doing online training just for work purposes. And she got a degree in psychology. A minor in CJ, and within six months she's taking project management courses because she needed that. And then we sit, we sat around and talked about it. And she goes, 
well, if I wasn't playing soccer, I could have just taken this project management course four <laughs> years ago yeah. and not had, you know, it was a private school. It wasn't cheap. It was, a, I think, textile and license after her scholarships, I was still out 110. So it's, it's a lot there's of a lot of competition now. And there's this, you know, whether it, it's the dirty jobs conversation, you know, for a long time, we've been saying everybody needs a college degree. And then now you have, there's a pretty significant movement saying, Mm, maybe not. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe you just need a specialized certification. But these universities, they run on enrollment, right? Mm -hmm. So how much of what you're doing, is, when you talk to a university now, how much are they scratching their head going, we have some legitimate competition here. And part of what we need to fix from an IT perspective is directly related to that competition. Um, I think some of them who have really, really sharp uh, uh, administration and IT folks, regardless of the size, have been pretty good at saying, you know, that I'm glad we did that software consolidation a couple years ago because now we have the ability to go and do something we really need to do on the front end to recruit students, to deploy some technology and some analytics to be more competitive. Um, because we did those things we were supposed to do, which also tells us we need to continue doing those things that will um, updating networks, you know, making sure you have DR in place, making sure you're doing the right basic stuff that will, will that way we can minimize how much cost that takes and effort, which makes more capacity available for doing the things we need to go to recruit students because it is getting more competitive. And then also from a cost standpoint, I think it takes longer, but over time, if, uh, um, you know, if, if technology is just kind of popping up in different departments or somebody goes and starts their own rogue IT group, it may seem faster, but then it's, you're spending more money than you need to, or you end up with two or three versions of the same software. And you see that a lot too, with some of these, uh, really large, uh, university systems that have all these different schools. Um, a lot of them will be running the exact same software, maybe different versions, uh, but they'll tell you that absolutely necessary to run it locally because our class schedule and structure is different. We use a different LMS, and uh, and you look at if, if you look at it from the commercial side, you're like that makes absolutely no sense at all to do. That should all be consolidated. And it's There's a, a lot of duplication, a, a ton of duplication, and. And not in, even just software, it's like, does every school really need a chemistry department? Um, you know, so you got, let's say you have 15 schools in the system and each one has a chemistry department. Do you really need a chemistry department? Well, I, I don't really know the answer to that, but it seems duplicitous. And, oh, by the way, how many people actually do take chemistry nowadays? What are they really taking? So I, I think it's something that, uh, uh, some of them are leading edge and are, are thinking, you know, we're going to stay in front of this. Some of it's going to be forced at some point because the economics are going to get to the breaking point where the enrollments are like this and the costs are still going like this. Um, you know, we just bought all this stuff to go do these things and uh, the next funding cycles in five years and nobody wants to use this stuff. Do they fund the same way if it's cloud? Is there a shift from CapEx to OpEx at um, all? There really, there really hasn't been, and that's been one of the issues with a lot of schools, um, that there are regulatory compliance. You have FERPA, you have things like that, where um, private data, student data, 
going across state lines or going out of the country or those sorts of things. I'm definitely not a, this would be more Brad's area, but there are regulatory compliance that says where where your data can go, who can look at it and that kind of thing. And um, some of the concern with going to cloud and why a lot of them have held off is that you don't know who has access to that data once it's out in the cloud. Who's accessing it, what are they doing? And so um, I think FedRAMP's been around for a while. There's a there's a text ramp now, so there's a certification process that they can go through now that, that says that that's a secure cloud that you can move to. Um, now, one of the issues you run into that is that, okay, well, how do you lift and shift that? Well, I think there, a lot of them are really starting to look at that now because the next, they may have just bought hardware last year, so it may be a few years, but they're really starting to look at, okay, we have a secure cloud, whether it's you know, AWS or whatever it is, we need to go figure out, can this set of applications work in that environment and how would it work? And uh, um, that's one of the things that we get asked a lot is, hey, can we lift and shift this? And, um, and it's like, well, what app are you talking about? And the like, simple answer yeah. is, yeah, the cloud is just somebody else's computer. The, the interesting thing is you start to run into, that's where this whole spider web thing comes in. So if they've done a pretty good job over the last few years of retiring old interfaces, updating their apps, patching all those kind of things, uh, eliminate, eliminating duplicate processes, um, and it's easier to do that. But if you have an old piece of software that um, API isn't supported anymore and that kind of thing, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen to that thing when you move it into a cloud environment because it turns out this guy over here in this department has been patching that thing once a week for to get it. He has to restart it every night when it runs, you know, and stuff like that. So you have all these, all the, um, all the weak points come out. And so you really have to look at the readiness is, is what do we need to do to make sure that um, when we shift it over to the cloud that we're not running around with our hair, hair on fire going, I mean, this thing goes down every every 10 minutes because we didn't think about this thing or this thing. Right. And uh, Is um, that something people yeah. call you regularly for and, and just not just your regulatory compliance, but our... We need somebody to see if we're cloud ready. It's a it's a big uh, it's a big opportunity for schools, and, and a lot of them are looking at it. Um, a lot of them have already moved like to Office three sixty five, so it was kind of their first cloud foray, and it took a long time for that to be okay to do. Um, but yeah, they're really starting to look at now how much can we move out there, and what is the the roadmap, which is a little bit tricky because of all the different interfaces and things, and then also funding. Um, they're starting to just be able to get to funding for cloud type services, uh, which is really more of a service to them, I think, than from a funding standpoint than an infrastructure. And then the timing on when you do it, because you have a window. If you don't get it done by a certain time, then you're going to have to buy some type of platform um, so that you can you can have software that's supported and in compliance and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a little tricky, but it is something we get asked a lot about. And, uh, um, and then what cloud works best for these types of apps and that's not always you know it's a that's something you have to you have to work through too but yeah it's it's something that uh, i think especially in the public sector and higher ed is moving fast is that happening with municipalities as well um some i think uh, probably not as much you know we do some work with municipalities but um some of them tend to be smaller and mid-sized mm -hmm. cities um i probably haven't seen it as much there and um but uh, I think kind of same thing. They're looking at it, trying to figure out timing-wise, where's the best play, and then what's really the benefit going to be of doing it? Well, one of the benefits is you don't have to 
go through the hardware cycle. Yeah. Some of them were concerned about, well, if I want to take it back, are my termination fees going to be really high? Um, and then, so what does it look like four, five, six, seven years out? And so I think there's some concern about that. And I think there's still concern about security. So, um, you know, who is really getting access? And I know it's TechSramp certified, but um, what if, um, gosh, what if some cloud company decides hmm, they don't like my school and they don't want to support me anymore and they want to turn off my system? Can they do that? Well, um, I think we've learned in the past year, year and a half that sometimes they can if they don't like your organization, they don't like what you're doing, they have some problem with it, they could just decide not to support you. Deplatforming like, well, yeah. for cloud services. Yeah, I mean, and so people worry about that. You know, schools worry about that. What if you're a professor that, you know, teaches a subject that some people, you know, is that's controversial and your student system's running in the cloud somewhere, or is, is somebody gonna turn you off because they don't like your opinion? And so you see some of those and they're good, I think they're good questions is what yeah. you, because you do lose, you do give up some sort of control. And then um, let's say you're a small or mid-sized private school, you're not gonna legally take on a big tech company that just turned off your system because they don't like something you're teaching. And I think that's a concern. Um, I'm hoping that some of the regulatory bodies will look at that and make that really difficult to happen so that people feel like that the, that, um, they can move to the cloud, they can use technology and uh, not have it, um, not have the opinion of the company that runs that cloud, tell them what they can't and can't do. Even an individual in that company. Yeah, or, yeah, or an mean, individual. It just takes one person to sit there and push the button and say, I don't like what professor so-and-so just yeah. tweeted. Yeah, I got an F when I took from them, so I'm just gonna accidentally delete their installation. And I know there's a fine line because you don't want people doing illegal things in the cloud environment, but I haven't seen that that's as much of an issue or as a concern. And so the cloud provider doesn't want to just have an anything goes environment, but you also, you know, where's the line on that? And we're, we're going to have to see, I think some of the, especially in the public sector, they're going to want to see some level of definition on what they can and can't do. And then you also hear hybrid cloud. So we don't ever want to give up hundred percent control of what we're doing. We want to have some ability to run and recover what's in the cloud under our own control in case you know the worst happens. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it becomes almost a, um, a public policy um, debate as much as tech, because we know it's an IP address that can run, but then who has the ability to shut that down? And you know, is it right now? It's kind of whoever has the most money and the most lawyers. Uh, can kind of do whatever they want. There's, there's got to be a better answer than that. I certainly hope so. Yeah, certainly hope so. But I do. Um, I had an in-law that was a CEO of a tier three telco, and sitting down talking with him. This gosh, this going on twenty years ago. Talked about um, whenever they would get sued he always welcomed it because he would just time it up in litigation until they went broke. Mm -hmm. That was his default answer to what if somebody wants to sue the company? Tom, I've got more lawyers. I got deeper pockets. I'll just put them in litigation. Forever. And, pretty and, much. Yeah. Forced mediation is the friend of the guy with the biggest lawyer mm -hmm. or the woman 
person, whomever. You got the biggest lawyer, you got enough money to pay them, you just outlast. So I think, you know, going forward, especially in the higher ed sector, a lot of the commercial folks have already lifted and shifted and they're looking at um, how do we utilize um, more sophisticated encryptions and things like that to to make their business more competitive, more secure, um, higher speed you know, processing capacities. Um, some of the public sector is really looking at, okay, when we lift and shift, how do we maintain control of uh, of data, what happens if we can't maintain control? What are, and so I think they're they're doing the right diligence. I think it's going to end up probably. And it's just my my opinion. Going to end up needing some public policy around how we do that, so that you don't have, like you said, a big tech company or some big company. All it takes is one bad actor to to really damage a you know a company or somebody who's utilizing their service. And then even if it's outside of a contract, it's still like, well, sue me, but your data's gone. So all right. So there's got to be um, there's got to be better protections, I think, and I think until then you've got to have some way to recover. I mean, you really do. Yeah, your DR plan's got to be on on point. So I, I meant to ask you earlier with what you're doing in higher ed, you know, especially a large campus, it's really a microcosm of it's its own city. Right. You've got hospitals. You've got living quarters, dorms, police, police. Do you? When you're advising auditing the university, is it all services? Are you looking at, you know, there's a security hole with how you're deploying network connectivity for your dorms? Mm -hmm. You are? Yeah, it, a lot depends on going into it. Um, they'll ask us, hey, they'll say, we want you to look at this. And we'll say, okay, well, what about this piece? What about this piece? No, we'll. Let's, let's not do that right now. Let's just focus on this. And um, usually, like when you look at some of the auxiliary services, so like healthcare, um, if they've got a small clinic or something like that, usually it's pretty pretty simple to go do that. But if they've got a, a medical center, that's like a whole a whole audit into itself. Either way, those, both of those are going to be HIPAA. Yeah. And, uh, but do you it, have to do PCI for like the food courts and we do. shopping, um, stadiums? We, we do that, but a lot of the point of sale systems, the vendors that provide those point of sale systems have um, audit mechanisms, usually with a third party auditing firm that, that audits their software. And so like if they implement a certain, if the school implements a certain point of sale system, you know, for uh, cafeteria and bookstore and all that kind of stuff, um, that point of sale system will, will have PCI compliance. We usually like to make sure that they're doing it and that they have their audits when they're supposed to have it. And we'll call it out, but we don't necessarily say, hey, we'll go PCI compliance up because they really should have already been doing it. We may call out that they're not doing it. Your PCI is more, what Brad was telling me is that the school is actually a financial institution it is. with uh, government aid, mm -hmm. receiving money, dispersing money, receiving, cutting a check, moving money into a balance. So you're providing that PCI oversight with that. Yeah, I was kind of thinking really more some of the the point of sale systems and things, yeah. a lot of the software, some of those, and that's an example of uh, things we don't do sometimes. So if, if they say, hey, can you go do PCI compliance on our um, system that we run in all our, our food courts and stuff, it's like, well, that's, that's this software. Um, 
there are firms that audit the PCI audits specifically on that software, and here's a list of them. I would just go make sure they're doing it, and uh, and if they're not, and make sure you can prove that. So roll that up into the reporting. Yeah, yeah. So well, you're <laughs> you're going to be more focused on the FAFSA stuff. Yeah, and also is there you know there's sprinklers, uh, is there wet pipe over your data center? Yeah, you know, things like that, little things that they people just never think about. They you know they spend several million dollars on a new, um, you know, server or telecom facility and then they've got wet pipe and ceilings. It just, it still happens. Crazy yeah. stuff like that. And we're not going to go move the pipe for them, but we'll say, hey, you know, there's a you know, wet pipe up there. It's they're like, oh, well, idea. it's supposed to be dry. Well, it's not. So <laughs> anyway. So what do you do in uh, for those server rooms? Is it foam or... If there is fire, well, it depends. It's all, some it, some of them use, topic, but yeah, I'm some of them use Halon, I think. Um, now we have infrastructure experts that know that stuff backwards and forwards. I think a lot of them use Halon, um, which is dangerous because I think it sucks all the oxygen out of the air. So you don't want to be in there when that goes off by accident. But um, yeah, there are certain things that make sense, and the whole data center, which is why it's you know good to use a cloud or to use a commercial data center. Because there, there's engineering expertise around that, that to the nth degree. If you use a commercial center, yeah, they know that you don't have to have people on staff. Um, you don't mm. want to go bring in some student workers that know a little bit about data centers. You want to use a commercially, and and you see that a lot. They'll start a new service in higher ed, public sector. They'll bring in people that have some knowledge, and they'll do it kind of, sort of, but not well enough and then something will happen. And uh, you see that a lot with security services, which is kind of how we got into the whole VC. So Brad probably, you know, they, you have a hiring structure that will only allow you to pay 80,000 a year for a security person. That's not gonna get you the level of expertise. So instead of um, using an outsider or figuring out a way, I'll say the pay structure just won't allow you to go there. It's like, okay, well, what if we get two 80K people? One of them knows this, one of them knows that. And you end up with two or three or four. And 10 of those 80K people are never going to know what that one 150K person knows how to do. And uh, and you end up with a lot of labor, but it's just not pieces of it are getting done. But it's They got a lower ceiling. They do. And, uh, and they're stuck with the pay structure that they have, and they have to stay within it. So, um it's you know it's usually behind the curve and like with cyber it's just gone even companies like us it's a challenge to keep up with what some of these folks make it's just a lot yeah and you see that a lot you know they'll be capped out at a certain level it's like well but we can get 10 people to work on this uh maybe that'll do it but it never really does two people could do it but they have to be really good and they're expensive and they don't fit in the pay structure but they they're not able to modify the pay structure to meet that Hmm. so it's a um a lot of them just do the best they can and say, okay, well, if it takes a hundred people, then we'll go hire a hundred people and we'll just, you know, um, <laughs> what is a swarm attack it or whatever yeah. and hope we get it all. And that just, that usually ends up driving your cost up and your capability down and then having to try to unwind that's tough. So all of a sudden you guys. So they're stuck. I, I want to restate that to make sure, sure I understand it for anybody listening because of pay structures and pay banding. Mm-hmm. I could theoretically go and hire 10 people at a lower salary, let's say 10 at $80,000 a year, 
which fully loaded, it's going to put you at ninety-two, ninety-three $93,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to spend a million dollars on those 10 people where I could have gotten the job done with one person that makes 150 and one person that makes 135. Yeah. And, and so then fully burdened, I'm paying 320, 330. But because of that pay structure, mm-hmm. I have to spend an additional six, seven hundred thousand dollars to try to do something I know I could do with two fully qualified people with lesser qualified people. Yep. And, and that's probably an extreme uh, an extreme uh, example, but that happens. It's usually more three or four or five type people and but well even if it was apples and apples and said i had to hire 480k people or i could hire two people that were just rock stars and they had the experience they had the tools they had the knowledge they were you know like peter vinkman it's you know they're they're ghostbusters they know what to do and so you end up with something so you multiply that times let's say four or five technology areas and they kind of get some stuff done but they never really get it done, especially as things like cyber get more complex, applications get more complex. Um, you end up with a fairly large cost and you never get it done. And then what do you do with those folks? Because most of them aren't uh, public sector. You know, in some places, the, there are rules against how you can adjust your labor force and all that kind of thing. The private sector, they'd probably just say, oh, we screwed up, you know, we need to cut labor and move to something that works better than that. But public right. sector, they have limitations. So they end up with a high cost and not getting much done. Who who defines what those costs and those salary ranges are? Is it the university or is it something that's regulated? It's usually the state that sets state? that. Yeah, and I think there is some adjustment for um, for individual institutions or for regions of the, the state. And I, I got to get you back in here with a friend of mine exactly. that was a state, state rep. I uh, get into that. How do we fix pay structures so that you're hiring the right person? And some of them even will go get some of the newer universities. I've seen them like for a CISO, for example, um, they really like to have their own. And from a regulatory standpoint, they really have to have somebody that's designated inside the university. And Brad can probably give you all the details on what there are certain positions in IT that from a regulatory standpoint have to be an employee. One of them is what they call the uh, information resource manager, IRM. That's usually the CIO, it can be the CFO, but that's the person that has fiduciary responsibility for all the IT assets. Um, So a lot of them are really, you know, they don't like, they can have an interim person in that role for a while, but then they usually have to move IRM to, to the CFO who usually doesn't want that, they want the IT person to have that. And so that's one of the things that happens. also, with the pay bands, depending on what your classification is, let's say you're a, a really sharp person with three years of experience and in college you managed VMware and, and did a good job of it, you know how to do it, you go to work for a school and they hire you as, let's say, desktop support, and, but you know how to support VM um, and you do it, you help them with it, you know how to do it. but. <laughs> because you've only been there for a certain amount of time and you're in this job classification, you can't go to additional training on VMware because that's only for system administrators. And you haven't, you don't have enough tenure yet to move into that system administrator role in order to be able to go get that training. And then there also has to be an opening, which there isn't, and the person you're running VMware for doesn't know it, so you're doing it for them 
and you're doing it for, you know, probably two thirds of what it would, you would normally get if you were in that role. So you end up in these weird little catch 22 situations where you've got somebody who could do it. Uh, they do it anyway. Um, they can't get training. They still have to do their day job and you've got somebody in the role who can't do it and they've got more junior person doing it for them. Um, and they would like to keep that person that's that should be able to grow into that position, but somebody's going to throw a bag of money at them mm -hmm. to go work private. And they're going to leave, yeah. Or they're just going to sit there and get disgruntled and then eventually become a person that is a senior, has tenure, um, has some of their retirement vested, and doesn't really know a whole lot and doesn't really want an outside firm coming in because they'll just point out the fact that they don't know very much. And wow. There's a better way to do it. So it's... And you see that in some older established companies too, where you get people in a role that they're just there because they've been there a long time. They don't really do a whole lot. And, you know, um, you know, it's funny because if you go look back 20, 25 years, senior people all had an administrator, they had a executive assistant and all this kind of stuff. And unless you're in a really, really big company, you just don't see that anymore. No. Um, people do their own schedules. And, and I think the labor force has just gotten a lot more efficient in uh, especially in the private commercial sector and i think there's a lot of people in the public sector that are trying to trying to get there um, but they have a lot of regulatory loops that they have to jump through to get there um, a lot of it has to do with funding pay bands what they can do within those pay bands too or job codes what they're allowed those people to do so um yeah it's it it's challenging how do you get something that's built to be hard to, and they make it hard to change because they don't want everybody at a whim changing a big organization. Um, Cause then you just have kind of, you know, chaos in higher ed and in government. But then how do you, how do you add some flexibility, especially in, in some sectors like technology so that they can kind of um, catch up with the times and be able to pay. Uh, they may not be able to compete with Google, but you know, maybe they can, they can do something in the region that's, uh, a good, stable, solid, well-paying job for somebody who's got the capability to do it. Because there's good reasons why you'd want to go do that job. Sure. Um, especially if the pay was even just kind of ballpark what you could get in the open market. Yeah. Now, of course, bad bad economy, everybody kind of piles into those jobs, right? Because yeah. we saw that They're in stable. 2000, 2001. But um, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, that whole labor labor, um, I don't know, labor imbalance, I guess, is pretty interesting. And that's how you end up with, with these huge labor costs and not getting done. You just, there's a lot of people who just can't quite get it done. Uh, so I don't know. Well, there's, there's a lot to unwind there, but in the near term, you guys are helping out universities, other public entities, and really everything around if it's got heavy regulation, you sink your teeth into it because it's hard. Yeah.